Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and we've got something a little bit uh, special for you guys today. Uh, over uh, the past weekend at South by Southwest in Austin, myself, uh, Jane Coaston, and Dara Lind had the chance to sit down with South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He is a, um, a really interesting guy. Uh, he's a candidate for president in the 2020 election. Uh, we had a, a really good conversation with him, complete with some question and answer from the audience uh, there at the end after the second ad break. Uh, I, I think you're really going to like it. We got into some stuff with him about you know, generational politics. He would be the first millennial to run for president. Also, some ideas around court packing, some other stuff that's that's a little bit outside the box. We recorded this outside in front of a live audience, so it, it may not sound you know exactly the same. Our, our engineers want you to know it's, it's not their fault. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting discussion. I think you're going to enjoy it. So thanks everybody for coming out. Uh, I know we had the uh, you know inconvenient time change last night. Sleepy. Glad everybody's here on time. It's exciting to be in the outside podcasting zone. Yes. Some some of our colleagues, frankly, they, they didn't have the guts for it <laughs> in, the, in the inside quiet room. But we really appreciate it. Um, and we are joined today by a fantastic guest. Um, he is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He is a um, candidate for president in 2020. And, and in lieu of further introductions, let's just please bring out. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and uh, all right, we're gonna have a great conversation. Thank you. All right. So, Mayor, uh, you know, I think it's it's fair to say we have a, a large field of candidates uh, out here, and you that's, don't say. that's an exciting time. Um, we we have, you know, we're used to a lot of presidential campaigns from senators, governors, maybe the occasional real estate impresario. Um, <laughs> Not as many mayors of, of, of sort of mid-sized cities. So can you tell us, like, who are you? What, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point. So right. uh, I, I get that like 37-year-old Midwestern millennial mayors are not traditionally the, the thing that leaps to mind when you think about U.S. presidential candidates. But uh, I think that uh, we need to break some of the patterns that we've fallen into that made the presidency that we're in right now even possible. So my story is coming from a community that's like so many communities around the industrial Midwest as well as rural communities where you grow up getting this message that success means getting out. You got to leave. And that's what I did. Uh, when I was 18, I got as far away as I could uh, and immediately began re realizing that I was from somewhere, that South Bend, which is this uh, 
community. You may know one thing about South Bend, which is that we got a, a football team and a university there. But um, <laughs> you know, uh, and we Sorry. could just we could do, discuss do, do that at length. We'll, we'll get into yes. that. <laughs> Go blue. Did, did That's deliver? all I have oh, no. to say. It was I'll have you know that the, the fight other. song this in Michigan was written by a South Bend person. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, this uh, has turned into a Michigan Notre Dame podcast. I'm very <laughs> sorry if you thought that otherwise. <laughs> No, but it's, it's important if you haven't been to South Bend to understand that this is a community that uh, we're, we're typical of a lot of the communities in the industrial Midwest. We grew up around the auto industry. Studi we were a company town for Studebaker. And up until the 60s, we were all about the auto industry. And then we happened to have a university there. Um, now all of that's changed, but, but we've been living with the legacy of you know, abandoned houses and empty, crumbling factories for as long as I've been alive. And the reason I think it's so important to have voices, especially in my party, the Democratic Party, from the industrial Midwest, is that we're being sold this vision now that, that would have us look for greatness in all the wrong places. Basically, an idea that the way to our hearts is resentment and, and that we want to turn back the clock uh, and indulge in nostalgia. And, that's just not how a comeback for a city like ours is going to work. So I'm in my eighth year as the mayor of the city. We were described in national media as a dying city my first year uh, getting in. And now we've got population growth faster than we've had in a generation. We've got jobs coming back. Our downtown's coming back to life. Uh, we, we've dealt with vacant and abandoned houses. The city is rising, and I think it's a metaphor for how America can move forward, which is not by pretending that we can go back. I don't think you can ever have an honest politics that revolves around the word again, but rather by constructing a new future and, and being honest about what it'll take to get to that future. That's South Bend's story, and, and my story is that of a mayor, a young mayor, who uh, did his part to make that happen. So, okay, it may be a metaphor, but it's also an actual city, right? Like, there are, I, and I think that to the extent that you're saying that this is an aspirational model, there, I, I assume, are particular things that you're thinking about that you were successfully able to do that, like, might be replicable in other places around the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about, like, A, what in particular you think South Bend has done that other cities need to be doing, and whether that's something that, you know, can be done at the federal level, given that so much of municipal policy is something that, you know, by definition, the federal government can't and shouldn't be involved in. Yeah, I mean, in my view, all politics is local, especially national politics. In other words, the, the issues that we talk about from, from race and policing to uh, the future of automation are getting cashed out in individual communities, individual economies, and individual people's lives. And what we did in South Bend was to, as I said, we began with honesty. So Studebaker and anything resembling that is not coming back, but we are, and here's how. Uh, we resisted the pressure that you've seen from the president on down to understand economic development, for example, in terms of landing the big factory, right? right. Getting the incentive that's going to get the big employer to come and solve all your problems. And instead talked about what you have to do to really create the conditions where people can thrive. Part of that is taking care of the basics, the things that have been disinvested in uh, across the country from uh, infrastructure to neighborhoods to, uh, you know, at the national level, uh, but also in state choices, education quite a bit. Part of it was understanding that we're going to have to diversify the future of our industry. We can't, just, we can't just build a wall around the status quo and hope it's going to be the same forever. So we're creating jobs in things like data analytics and data centers on the very acreage where the Studebaker factories once stood, taking advantage of some of the assets they have that have totally different uses now. For example, we had all these power substations. They had nothing left to power because the factories were gone. 
So what we, what we realized, I mean, not that I, as, as the mayor, sat there in the county city <laughs> building and realized this, but what we as a community realized was that that was an asset because you need uh, good power in order to run data centers. And then we looked for ways to make sure that when you put up a data center economy, it wasn't just the boxes, which are nice to have, you can collect property taxes on them, but it's not really a major source of large numbers of good paying jobs. But we realized that if we had the right quality of place to attract people, then we would see businesses that do the analytics around those, uh, around those computers. Um, but again, that quality of place is the thing that's missing largely in our conversations about economic development because we forget that companies are made of people and people go where they want to live, which means you've got to take care of everything from safety to quality of life to having good places to eat and drink and hang out. And that's just as important as you know, finding the right structure for a tax abatement to try to pick off some employer that's deciding where to locate. So you are the Democratic mayor of a city that's located in a red state. Do you think that you have a better handle on some of the issues that Democrats faced in 2016 that Democrats are trying to kind of look forward to in 2020 in terms of attempting to appeal not just to Democrats, but also appealing to kind of Democrat mi mi democratic minded independents and others kind of out like across the political spectrum. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's, there's two kinds of voters. There's Democrats and there's potential future Democrats. And- uh, <laughs> Optimism. <laughs> no, but this is really important also because there's a very rich uh, progressive tradition in the heartland. Matter right. of fact, the, the big P progressive tradition was born in the heartland. Also Sawatomi, uh, where, where the, that TR gave that speech. Uh, John Brown in Kansas. Uh, Eugene American Debs, hero. straight up John socialist Brown. from Indiana. Uh, you got uh, uh, you know, William Jennings Bryan. I mean, the heartland used to produce our most economically forward-thinking leaders. And we need to recognize that there's no iron rule that says the, the heartland has to be conservative. I think our party made a lot of mistakes in terms of our tone and our approach, not our values. I think our values are right. And now we're on the cusp of potentially making another mistake, which is to think that uh, appealing to the so-called Rust Belt involves retreating in some way on our commitment to racial and social justice, which is the wrong way to grow the party in my view. Um, but rather, what we need to do is find those uh, ideas, especially fairness and belonging, that matter across different constituency groups instead of trying to talk to constituency groups one at a time. So I, I want to push you on the racial justice side though, because like the politics, the racial politics in particular of John Brown are very different from the racial politics of William Jennings Bryan. And right. like, yes. there's definitely an argument that there is, I mean, you know, th that you're, this is a bit of a tough crowd for you because both Jane and I are people who got the hell out of the Midwest. <laughs> we did. Um, <laughs> we, we both grew up in Cincinnati and neither of us intends to move back to Cincinnati ever. Nope. Um, and so, but like, but wow. I think that it's, uh, that I think Jeez. both of us have had experiences of yep. being othered in various ways in our hometowns and that's right. a lot of what forced, what made us not want to come back. So like, how do you, I, there is a certain Midwestern racial and social conservatism that, that's legit. How do you deal with that without, you know, pandering? To it. Yeah, yeah. Right. you push it. I mean, look, when I came out as gay, for example, it was the middle of a reelection campaign. Mike Pence was the governor of Indiana. And I was from a socially conservative community. We didn't know what was going to happen. But what we found was that we could appeal to just a sense of, first of all, decency, that when people actually know you, it's a little bit different than when people talk about categories of people. Um, and secondly, uh, uh, practicality. I was like, look, do you, do you like the job I've been doing for you in this city or not? And got, wound up getting reelected with 80% of the vote. So uh, I think that 
there's a lot to be said for addressing people as though they were the way you hope they'll be and challenging them to, to meet that expectation rather than just writing whole parts of the country off and assuming that they're going to be, because if you do that, it's self-fulfilling. If we just assume that the middle of the country is going to be absorbed in nostalgia and resentment, that's pretty much what's going to happen. And we just can't, uh, first of all, politically, but also morally, I think we can't afford to let that happen. So do you think it makes a difference that, you know, Studebaker uh, went to bankruptcy 50, 60 years ago, uh, yeah. sort of a, a generation earlier than some of the deindustrialization problems in other states. Do, do you think that makes a difference in making it possible to sort of get beyond nostalgia when you when you get a, a certain amount of depth in time that may be a, a harder sell in communities that are looking to a more recent past? Yeah, I think it has helped because, you know, I, I wasn't alive to even see the Studebaker factory right. when it was humming, right? It was a ruin the entire time I grew up. All of those buildings were. And I think if I ever had seen them up and running, probably I would have been able to imagine nothing else than trying to get them back that way because I only knew them as ruins and because I'd, I'd grown up among these kind of broken shards of, of, of our heyday, um, all I could picture was ways to find new value in that. But I think we've got to accelerate the pace. Of, well, the, the pace of change is accelerating with or without us. And I think a big part of what's at stake right now, especially in our politics, is are we or are we not going to find a way to make these changes work for us? And it can be done. In an automated, globalizing world, it can be done. One of the biggest expansions we've had recently of union auto worker jobs in St. Joe County was on a line that used to make Hummers and is now producing electric vehicles for a startup that is based in Santa Clara, where most of the investment's coming from the Chinese. So there are ways to wire this up that works for, in, for workers where we are. We have to identify uh, success in the change because Otherwise, there's this message that's basically saying you don't have to change, right? I mean, that's the, the core kind of falsehood. And, you know, when he said, you know, we're going to bring back coal, something like that. What he's really saying is nothing's going to have to change for you. And I think people are realizing that promise can't be kept. What we have to do is present a, a, a vision and a reality where the, the changes can be more of a benefit than not. And I'm not naive about the challenges involved in that, especially as things like automation pick up. And actually, I'm more worried about automation than I am about trade. But both of those are, are trends that are going to continue to impact people. And as they continue to feel left behind, there is going to be more of an appetite to just kind of burn the house down, which is how I think a lot of people who had historically voted Democrat walked into that uh, uh, voting booth and uh, did what they did in 2016. At what point do the kind of, you know, telling people hard truths about the inevitability of change turn into hard truths about maybe you do have to move out of your hometown? Like maybe you need to, maybe people do need to relocate to where the jobs are. I think it's only becoming more true that where the jobs are is flexible. And, and what we're seeing in, in our experience is people are more, especially in our generation, are more likely to um, go to a place that they're excited to be in and find work if they can, um, than to be kind of propelled to different places by the job market. I mean, we, we all know uh, of the experience of going somewhere for work, but um, frankly, if pure economics were deciding things, for example, Chasson and I live in, in a, a house on the river uh, in South Bend. It's, it's got big columns. It's, it's historic, built in 1905, fireplaces, wood paneling, uh, about 2,500 square feet. 
the mortgage. You're trying to make us jealous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The mortgage is about four hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> you add in the taxes and the in no, you got to add taxes and insurance though, so that oh, brings sorry. it up to about eight hundred bucks. Uh, um, all right. Sooner or later, people who pay that much in order to have a parking place in yeah. bigger cities, where they're telecommuting or, or 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 traveling half the time anyway are going to realize that maybe there's a better quality of place and quality of life waiting for them in communities like ours, if they're inclusive and welcoming communities and connected communities. Uh, so I think there's actually more opportunity than ever for, in my view, undervalued or underpriced places in the heartland uh, to grow at a time when having to be physically close to a customer or uh, a certain operation is actually less important than ever for large chunks of uh, the American workforce. So uh, Iowa Democrats were recently polled about their top priorities when thinking about 2020, and their top priorities were healthcare, climate change, income inequality, immigration, race relations. How many priorities job. are there? there? There were many priorities. <laughs> so I'm interested to hear on uh, any of these issues where you think your experience as being the mayor of a, you know, a small city can help at the federal level. Because I think that that's something, you know, as you are kind of the only mayor in this race right now, you have a different perspective on what works. As you said, all politics is local, but Good. then some politics is federal. Yeah. How, how do you make that transition? <laughs> on these issues about which clearly Democrats specifically are interested. Yeah, do the list again. Uh, so climate change, healthcare, income inequality, immigration, race relations. All right, so uh, I mean immigration, my, my um, roots on that, in addition to my personal roots as the son of an immigrant, um, are based on the fact that our community would not be growing, right? So as mayor, I'm cheerleading the population growth right. of our city. It would be net zero if it weren't for immigration. By the way, that's how our city got going in the first place 100 years ago. And now we have neighborhoods that almost emptied that were Polish neighborhoods that are now being reanimated once again with large immigrant Catholic working families that are speaking uh, Spanish instead of Polish. Now policy-wise, what do we have to do? Obviously comprehend of immigration reform that has a pathway to citizenship uh, when you can have a grand bargain where there's border security involved you can emulate what the senate did that was killed in the house climate change is interesting because i think cities are where climate change is actually happening right so my project as a matter of political rhetoric is to try to change if i if, if you close your eyes and picture a news story about climate change what's the b-roll that's going to go through your head there's probably a chunk of ice right uh, falling off the antarctic there's a polar bear somewhere that that's what climate change is only climate change is happening in our cities i mean it, it, neighborhoods houses destroyed in my city by historic floods that have been way too historic to happen twice in a row um, what does that mean nationally? I mean, obviously, you know, the framework of the Green New Deal is one that we've got to lean into. Uh, there are R&D investments we've got to make in renewables. We've got to rejoin Paris and probably do something more aggressive in terms of carbon standards and so on. But my goal politically is to tether that to everyday lived experience. On healthcare, I think any community knows that uh, its future depends on everybody having access to healthcare because, among other things, you're not going to have entrepreneurship of the kind that powers uh, cities and, and towns unless people know that leaving their job doesn't mean losing their health care, which is one of the reasons why we need to move toward a Medicare for all system. Race relations are probably experienced nowhere more acutely uh, than in the intera interaction between law enforcement, which is local government, uh, and individuals, especially in neighborhoods and communities of color. And we used to get a lot of support. Uh, uh, my police chief and I got tons of support from the Obama White House on what was called 21st century policing, uh, creating tools and mechanisms for accountability and trust building. And now the DOJ un under the current president has basically abandoned that. And I forgot the fifth one. 
Uh, income inequality. Income, so, yeah. um, look, that's that's manifestly federal. I mean, we're we're sometimes we I feel like we're doing what we can at the local level to make sure that that income inequality is being addressed, and it's like you're it's like you're pushing on a string. Um, this we have to have a fairer tax code. We have to reinvest in the engines of, of social mobility. Uh, we have to say that it's not acceptable to us that uh, the American dream, the number one place to experience the American dream, is Denmark, uh, followed by Canada. Um, nothing against the Danes or the Canadians, but it, that should be America. And there are all kinds of, st uh, part of what I hope 2020 will be about is what it takes to make that happen. 2020 definitely will be about that kind of substance, Denmark versus Canada. I think <laughs> President Trump is really going to want to get into get into the details on I don't care I, what I, he I wants to get into, to though. The, uh, I, th I think this is really important, actually. So yeah. there, there's a conversation going on about who do we want to put on that debate stage who's really going to get to the president, yeah. who's really going to get under his skin and yeah. get his attention and serve up that zinger that's going to do him in. And I got my little zingers. I think sure. I'm up how, and I'm in the shower. It's, <laughs> it's not the point. <laughs> when we're thinking that way, we are in a mentality in which Donald Trump is the one we're trying to impress. We need to flip the script to where he's the one trying to get support from the rest of us because he's out of step with the rest of us. And by the way, this presidency will come and go. So one of the reasons that I'm working so hard to have this campaign largely be about what the world will look like in 2054, which is when I get to the current age of the current president, uh, is to remind everybody that what's at stake is a lot more than one presidency. It's the forces that have made a candidacy like his which never should have even come anywhere within cheating distance of the presidency. Possible. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, 
It does seem like the politics of border security have changed since 2013, both because of Donald Trump and the wall, and because, frankly, it does seem that Democrats have moved substantially left on the issue. Like, I remember when the, you know, the Corker-Hoven amendment to throw a lot of money at the border that got a lot of Republicans on board with the 2013 Senate bill, like, that was a bitter pill to swallow for activists, but they sucked it up. That doesn't appear to be something they're willing to do at this point. Like, do, how do you get to a grand bargain if the idea of throwing money at the border is no longer something that Democrats can accept? I think when we actually have a shot at protecting dreamers, establishing a pathway to citizenship, ending family separation, and creating the, the kind of rational legal framework for lawful immigration that this country clearly needs, then we can also accept that if we're going to have a border, it's got to be secure. Um, but that doesn't involve putting a wall up from sea to shining sea. I think we can have that conversation. Um, but I'm glad that for once, our entry into the conversation, our first offer, isn't already in the middle so that we bargain against ourselves the rest of the time. It's fine for us to be further out there today. And then in the, the negotiation, we'll come up with something that, that, that we can all, uh, however grudgingly, accept that will make America dramatically better off and more just than it is today. The other thing that's changed about the border is that we actually do have an incoming flow of people who end up unauthorized, in, yeah. it, which was not true in 2013 with the current flow of asylum seekers. Like, does a border security deal mean in practice that you're cracking down on you know, the families that are coming from the Northern Triangle? Well, obviously this has to be backed by a bigger picture solution in terms of what, we, what obligation we have, whether it's out of moral uh, sensibility or out of self-interest, to diminish the, the, the demand, right? To diminish the push factors that have so many people fleeing that region for their lives. And you know, frankly, American foreign aid has always largely been about American interests. Uh, let's do it in a way that's also the right thing to do and mitigate the flow uh, so that it's not something that we're expecting, you know, border security personnel to solve when it's really a regional security matter. So you're, you're on the young side for presidential candidate, I think. You and, and, you know, I think, you know, this thing I like about you. I think it's great. Somebody, uh, you know, for, from our generation, seems cool. It's extremely then, hashtag relatable. Exactly. But then, <laughs> but then I think to myself, like, well, does that make sense, Matt? Or is this just like, well, you were born in the early 80s, so you want to see somebody else like that. Like, what, 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 what is the case? You know, we, we, we need some, some change, turn of the page, a new generation. But, like, what, what does that amount to to you? Yeah, I think early 80s is a great vintage. Sure. Because uh, <laughs> you're, you're millennial, technically, right? Yeah. Um, but you can remember the smartphone not being a thing. There you go. Half your life was at peace and half your life was at war in terms of what was going on with America. And you saw the, tr the transformation that came with things like social media and, and all of this, right? Um, but I think more than anything, it's, it's just that we have a sense of the stakes of political decisions. There's that weird period in the 90s where it felt, they were talking about the end of history, uh -huh. right? It felt like maybe we just beat history and like war was something that happened in other places and other times. And all these kind of upheavals we read about are in the history books. And it uh, turns out, no, like I think we lost our innocence with 9-11 and it's only gone from there with the recession and the current election and, and all the rest of it. Like, no, we're, like the history didn't end. These forces are all around us and we're gonna have to deal with them, right? We're gonna be paying the bill for the tax cuts for billionaires that were passed that are, that are unaffordable. We're going to be dealing with climate change for the rest of our lives. Uh, we're, um, you know, we grew up with school shootings as the norm, and we're going to have to figure out a way to fix that. Um, all of this stuff is coming down on our heads, or it will. 
And I think the appeal of somebody from that generation is just saying, let's put in somebody who has a personal stake, not just a theoretical one, in what the world's going to look like then. I just, I, I do wonder how much of this is like a youth thing versus a generational thing. I mean, like as um, and kind of the, the younger end of older millennials, coming into the job market during the Great Recession was yeah. like an extremely formative experience for everybody our age. Yeah. But I do see a real difference between us and the people who are a few years younger than we are who didn't have that experience and who are, you know, who appear to be making more radical demands. Like, I, you know, we, like, I personally have a very, like, head down hustle. Right. You know, like, I can't accept, I can't expect much out of the economy, so I have to do my job better. Whereas it seems like the people who are a little bit younger have kind of start from, I can't expect anything from the status quo, and therefore the status quo needs to be changed radically. Yeah, they've all got soon. their red rose emojis. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Like, is that, like, as somebody who is kind of, a per like has taken a personally conservative path of like, oh, you know, local elected office. Do you think that that's a kind of dispositional difference between you and other people of our age or? I mean, I certainly think that the, there are disciplines that are imposed on you by living in a recession. Um, I also think though that, you know, younger people are not wrong when they're calling into question these basic assumptions, right? So we just, we just live with things that we know are dumb, but we're just okay with it. Like DC is not a state. That's, that's dumb. Um, I agree. Yep. <laughs> there are people in America who are citizens who don't get us. That's just right. Um, so I, I'm using that as an example from our democracy, but, but our democracy and our economy are peppered with institutions and structures and habits that have gone unquestioned maybe for decades or longer that I think, uh, there's the, a newer generation is calling them all into question, largely because they're saying, you know, if our political system works, how did it produce this current uh, political class, n not just in, in the White House, but in the Senate, who seem to have no idea what they're doing? If our economy works, how is it that the rising tide has risen more than any rising tide has risen ever? We have unbelievable growth in production, uh, productivity, capability. I mean, we, we can basically, if, if distribution had been worked out, um, everybody would be better off, and yet so many people are stuck. And the younger you are also, the more uh, oppressive the student debt burden is on you, um, reaching, you know, basically dream-crushing proportions. And you're just saying, okay, but why? And there's not a great answer for why, other than that it's kind of been this way for a while. And that when I took office in South Bend, those became banned words in the County City Bill. Because every time I was like, why do we do it this way? I said, well, Mayor, we always done it this way. I was like, okay, but why? And if the answer was because we've always done it this way, then that was time to review why we're doing these things. So part of something, you know, I write predominantly about conservatism, the GOP. And one of the discussions that's happening among conservatives right now is very reflective of the idea that in some ways Trump appealed to a populist messaging during 2015 and 2016. I was glad you referenced, or we referenced William Jennings Bryant, one, because the cross of gold speech still remains fire. And <laughs> two, because populism is a message that seems to have bipartisan appeal. Yeah. You know, there are conservatives who are making the argument for the expansion of the earned in income tax credit yeah. and having a real conversation of like, maybe the government should do more. Yeah. Now, obviously, among other conservatives, that's still anathema, but do you see that as a means by which you could kind of cross 
party lines in some ways, making the appeal that like, yes, the government should do more and do it better. Yeah, I think uh, right now we have this moment where there's all these realignments going on. I mean, everything's been thrown into kind of almost chaos, largely because of a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, uh, which opens up all these new possibilities. So whether it's the fact that a lot of people have been voting Republican, but their instincts are uh, populist or, um, or, or frankly, uh, more leftward on economics, or whether it's the fact that, uh, uh, that, you know, around criminal justice reform, which used to be a very progressive, maybe even you know, dangerously leftist cause. Turns out you can stitch together a coalition of all generations of, uh, of the left with a newer generation of libertarian-ish, conservative-ish young people who, who also think, again, having just looked pragmatically at something like the war on drugs and noticed that it doesn't work, um, even if they're not from a tradition that's attentive to the racial inequities of it, for example, um, and, and make a common cause and build something new. There's been this Remarkable buzz, I think, suddenly about reparations in the Democratic primary. What, what do you make of that? I mean, I think it's coming from the same place, right? So there's this un injustice. Uh, we just have been living with it. Um, maybe for a while we could get by with it because, as a country, because we told ourselves we were making so much progress on things like voting rights through the 60s that, you know, racial injustice was being healed. Mm -hmm. um, I think I came up, uh, frankly, and, and, and people my age came up maybe uh, being told that this was a historic thing, right? The, so historically there was outright racism and segregation. Uh -huh. Now. Well, like sometimes it happens by accident, but you know that's not really right because some issue. people are bad people. Exactly. Right. Right. And uh, but the bad people went away, or there's a few bad people, but not many. And now we're we're facing the fact that it's not like that. That there is a direct relationship between uh, past racism and present racism. Uh, that there's a, a direct relationship between past uh, racially motivated uh, harms and current outcomes that there is a, a direct relationship that, as Faulkner said, the past is never dead, it isn't even past. Mm -hmm. And so it's led to this question of if the inequality between white people and people of color, um, that both of those, not only the, the um, average uh, disadvantage of people of color, but also the average benefit of white people are related to each other, then maybe we gotta do something to rewire that. Now, I think this is the beginning of a debate, uh, not the end of it. I, I have actually haven't heard a lot of credible uh, articulated policies on what it looks like. So right. the best I can come up with from a policy perspective in, in the short term is what are we doing around policy reforms we know need to happen to prioritize the ones that have the strongest uh, racial equity at stake, right? Like criminal justice reform, but also uh, a lot of economic questions that have that same profile to them. Uh, minimum wage, right? Which we know disproportionately impacts uh, working women of color for example. Um, but that's the beginning of asking, okay, can we do anything systemic that's actually fair? And right. the conservative objection to even mentioning this, right, is that they can't imagine a way to do this that would be fair to people who don't think of themselves as racist um, uh, and maybe haven't come to terms with the extent to which they're benefiting from past and or maybe present racism. But so, I mean, so there's a tension there, right? I, I remember when, when Barack Obama was president, he's pushing uh, what became the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, this is a, a race neutral thing. It's helping people get health insurance. Of course, lower income people are disproportionately people of color. So there is benefit to many people, but maybe disproportionate benefit to, to blacks and Latinos. And I'm here, Rush Limbaugh characterized this program as reparations, yeah. right? And this is, that's the politics, right? The Democrats are trying to say, here we have a good idea that is going to help struggling people of all kinds. And then like, yes, it is true that more of the struggling people are maybe right. people of color, 
But then it's conservatives who are saying, no, 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 this is racial redistribution. Right. Right. And now I hear more and more Democrats up on stages like this doing the opposite and saying, aha, like what you might think is our race neutral economic justice platform. That's actually the reparations. <laughs> right. Yeah. And like what like like what's the point of making that transformation? Well, part of it's breaking the trap, right? Because if um, if you know the dark side of opposition to economic uh, dealing with economic inequity is a lot of the opposition to it is racist because people think of uh, low income people mostly as people of color, um, then it's very circular. Because then the opposition to it helps make sure that most people of color are in the lower categories of income. So we can talk about different flavors of reform, but. Um, the, the fundamental question is, are we reinforcing or breaking the tendency of these patterns to repeat themselves? And that's why I come back to social mobility, right? The American dream can be put into a number, and it's how many people in the bottom quarter or bottom fifth economically actually make it to the top, or at least the middle. And that number is going down. For Some countries are better than ours at driving that number up. Uh -huh. And you can look for patterns in terms of the policies that help do it and we're getting worse at it. So what, what is that about fundamentally, mobility? And like, this is, uh, I think there's been a big debate where some people have said, well, we really need to focus on mobility rather than equality per se. And then other people have said, well, look, it's not a coincidence. It's easier to right. climb the rungs in Denmark because the rungs are closer together. And, and how do you see yourself on that spectrum? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I, I tend to fall in the latter camp. I mean, you, you, and the reason is, the more concentration you have of wealth, the easier it is to launder that wealth into a concentration of power. And I think that's why, whether it's through outright uh, things like the way money plays a role in politics today, or in more subtle kind of patterns of influence. I mean, if you think about it, um, as the top 0.001% has got wealthier and wealthier, I suspect that the actual day-to-day -day lived experience of being in the top 0.01% isn't that different from being in the top 0.0001%, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. Everyone's got here. their zero straight. But <laughs> I'm thinking like, if I had $100 million and I'm thinking of all the things I would do yeah. that, I, that I might enjoy myself sure. with $100 million, right? Um, if I had 10 billion, it's hard to think of how that would be different in kind. Uh -huh. So you think of the activities who have that much, people who have that much. I don't think it's being spent on lifestyle. I think it's being spent on power. Right. It's being spent on acquiring still more uh, uh, properties or, or companies often that can generate more wealth. Or it's being spent, as you see with the Koch brothers, on realigning American politics in some way that's uh, either to their uh, economic advantage or to their ideological taste. Uh, and that winds up then making it that much harder to live in a society that enjoys social mobility. There, it, we also just have to break this idea that the fewer rules there are, the easier it is to get ahead. But it turns out that doesn't work. Um, and we know that doesn't work because we tried it and it sucks. It does kind of feel like, I, I'm not sure that, and you know, never having had, never having been in either the top 0.1% or, you know, put more zeros in it, but like, <laughs> Must be it nice, does right? seem that a, there's, there is a growing gap there yeah. uh, with, you know, the hyper, hyper, super rich and B that there is more of an aspirational envy based politics around it, that people who are not quite in the super upper echelon are still following the super upper echelon on Instagram. Right. And like and the, the, the kind of natural human tendency to picture yourself as the victim of your own story can get can get way out of whack when you're somebody who is objectively doing just fine. Right. But who is paying attention to the people who are doing better than you. Like how does that, you know, and that's that's not even talking about 
changing the status quo so that some people have less power. That's just like dealing with the status quo as it is. How do you persuade people who are convinced that they don't have everything and are the losers that in fact they're doing pretty okay? Well, what do we, first I don't want us to have any illusion about how hard it is for middle income people in the middle class to, to do what we would consider as being okay, right? Because of the insecurity of it, because of the, the fear that goes with the fact that you could be more or less uh, average and be really a couple of bad turns away from ruin in your life. And that's some of the things I think we have to change with very specific policies around healthcare and portability of benefits and maybe even basic income and so on. But uh, I do think that culturally we got to ask, what do we celebrate? Right? And, and this starts at the top, and it does matter. It's, it's, it's one of the things that matters with the presidency, right? If the, if the president is a billionaire who celebrates billionaires and thinks that being a billionaire reflects greatly on your character, it's different than if you have a president who celebrates uh, achievements in the arts and the contributions of teachers and uh, the, the you know, civic life. Um, and w with the possible exception of military service, I don't see a lot of forms of non-selfish achievement being celebrated by those who are currently in power. So something I, I always like to remind people of is, you know, no matter who the next president is, you're going to be dealing with Congress. That's where legislation sort of comes from, this limited influence. But a president does get to sort of pick their own team. And that is one way which it makes a big difference who, who's in office. And how do you think about that? I mean, if, if you're in the White House, are you going to call up the old, uh, the assistant secretaries from the Obama administration, bring them back in as undersecretaries? Or... Is there is there some kind of some kind of new approach? Some like yeah, I mean, like, what what's the, your philosophy? Your talent pool? What are the yeah. first things you learn when you when you assume an executive role? Is you got to find somebody who's smarter than you are at each particular issue and put them in charge of it so that they can give you advice. And then what what happens is they wind up like you 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 get the best people you can in the room to solve some issue and you listen to their advice and it starts to converge. Then then it's easy, right? As long as you've uh, I'll come back to this one precondition. But then if everybody <laughs> agrees, then you're like, okay, all these people who are smarter than me on these issues agree, I should do this. If they don't agree, that's when you're about to earn your paycheck, right? right? Because now you got to figure out, uh, okay, there's some very convincing reasons to go this way and some convincing reasons to go that way. Or, you know, somebody's reminding me that if I make this group better off, there's no way to do it unless I make that group worse off. And you're beginning to negotiate these. They're not technical problems, they're moral problems. And uh, you need a team that can help surface that. Now, the one big if on, on all of that is the team has to be sufficiently diverse, right? You have to have enough people who represent by uh, either ideological orientation or personal background, enough diversity of experience and thought that you're not just converging as a mathematician would say on a local optimum, right? That you're not just, it sounds like a consensus, but that's just everybody's got the same uh, background. It's converging on the local optimum, is that going <laughs> in your stump speech? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it lands really well in the, in the uh, meet and greets. No, no but it, I think, you know, I, I, mean, I am analytical about this sure. because I make decisions for a living. Yeah. And so what I think about is how, how do we make sure we make the best decisions, especially when people's lives or other people's money is on the line. And Building that team means turning to people who know what they're doing. It means listening to them. Uh, and the other attribute you really need is people who will tell you things you don't necessarily want to hear. Uh, I had one guy who uh, nailed his job interview for uh, a, a cabinet role in, in my administration in South Bend when he talked about being at a previous employer and he noticed that uh, as the boss, everybody was agreeing with him at every meeting. <laughs> so one day he developed, he was an engineer, and he developed a deliberately bad idea 
and presented it to the group to see what would happen. And then when they all told him what a great idea he'd had, they, they stopped and had a real process of talking about the obligation to dissent. And I thought, all right, you're hired. And sure enough, he's one of the mo ones most likely to speak up in a meeting when I think like things are going along great. And be like, actually, this isn't going to work, and here's why. So something I want to ask you about, um, it was interesting when we announced that we were interviewing you and I thought it was particularly interesting like oh you know as a gay person myself I'm like it's really interesting to be talking to a gay mayor and who is running for president and the number of people who were like I had no idea and for me you know part of the reason why I left the Midwest was I did not think in 2005 I could be a gay person living in Ohio and not be a very unhappy gay person living in Ohio. And obviously since 2005, a lot has happened um, for LGBT people, yeah. both in the Midwest and across the country. But one, how do you see that change in kind of the work that you're doing? And two, you know, where do you see, I'm aware that this is like an identity politics question, but identity matters. Yeah. Where do you see where LGBT people who are working and acting in government, where do we need to go next to make equality more of a reality than just a vision that we're, you know, we're starting to see achieved, but we've still got a long way to go. Yeah, very long way to go. I mean, there's no Federal Equality Act. People can get fired for who they are in many parts of the country, including right. many parts of Indiana. Right. Uh, we have an attack, an outright at assault on trans people, uh, whether they're in the military or whether in the high school just trying to go to the bathroom. And we need to be really intentional about reversing that. Visibility matters, representation matters, just having more people step forward as leaders who are from the LGBTQ community and can say it. Um, but I do take a lot of heart from the pace of change, right? I mean, uh, 2005, uh, 2010, when I started getting into elected politics, in Indiana, you could be out or you could be in elected politics. You could not be both. Um, but the other thing that I think is important and, and extends more broadly to this, this kind of question of identity politics is sometimes we use identity to explain how our own personal and often challenged experience uh, gives us a sense of what it's like to be othered or, or, or you know, the struggle that people are going through that's very particular to our community. Other times I think we can use it as a basis for, for solidarity. And, and I don't mean, you know, I think it's very dangerous when we say, you know, I'm part of this outgroup, so I know what you're going through in that outgroup, right? <laughs> I mean, even within the LGBT, I have no idea, personally, I have no idea what it's like to be a trans woman of color, for example. But I know that I'm going to stand up for trans women of color uh, because I know they stood up for me. But there's also something else, a broader sense of solidarity that's possible, which is that um, actually for me, like my marriage, my gay marriage, is the main thing that helps me relate to straight people. You know, before, especially before I was out, if I was with straight people and they were talking about their relationships and, and, and their marriages and I was trying to be sympathetic, I was, I was basically just guessing, right? <laughs> now, I, this is actually the most normal thing in my life. Amen. Um, and so... Marriage equality has really brought the sense of like, oh, marriage is marriage. We yeah. can just be married people. It's delightful. Because we got to deal with the groceries and the dogs and, and the laundry and, and all the things that married couples deal with. And so I hope that we can take these different threads of identity and instead of pretending they're not there, or in, also instead of allowing them to be things that divide us, look for ways that they can be sources of common purpose and solidarity uh, among all of us who need to come together as, as the country is being wedged and walled and, and divided. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20 minute full body workout can be a piece of cake. 
Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. All right, I think uh, I think we've got time to uh, take a couple of questions from right. the audience if anybody's interested. We have some uh, some microphones. Um, yeah, please. Hi there. I heard you last week on some other political podcast um, <laughs> mention that in a field of really crowded Senate candidates, you stuck out due to your experience as being a mayor. And I thought you made some great points about running a small business and all those different things. How do you anticipate um, answering some tough questions around your perceived lack of foreign policy experience going into the 2020 election? Well, uh, I could talk about studying foreign policy as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, but to be honest, my best education in foreign policy came when I was deployed to war as a military intelligence officer. Uh, it gave me a, a, a real understanding of uh, what's at stake in the foreign policy choices that we make. And I think, again, that the reality is it's, it's very rare for anybody to walk into the Oval Office on day one and be a, you know, an expert on regional security concerns in the Caucasus. And if they happen to do that, they're probably not an expert on what's going on in Latin America um, or nuclear issues or cyber, or all of the things that are at stake in national security and foreign policy. Uh, so I think part of it is, again, having the executive experience to tackle any complex issue or issue set and knowing how to solicit advice, uh, get information, uh, and apply that in order to make good decisions. I also think that each of us in this 2020 conversation is going to have to communicate our foreign policy framework because the U.S. does not have a foreign policy right now, and that puts us all at risk. My framework is based on the idea that every time we've thought that American interests could be pursued in a way that was contrary to American values, we've been wrong. And in many ways, this is generational too, because sometimes it took a generation for that to catch up to us. But when we did something, for example, that probably wasn't the right thing to do in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, a generation later, that came back to bite us. Uh, the solution, that doesn't mean that we uh, collapse into isolationism. What it means is that when we contemplate an action in support of American interests, we vet it against American values. And then when possible, we consult with American allies because the next president is going to have to do two things right away. Number one, make sure that there is a clearer standard articulated to the American people for when we're going to use force. But number two, reestablish American credibility in the international community. It is dangerous for us. Uh, for all of us when we don't have that credibility. You could see how isolated we were at the Munich Security Conference when the Vice President was trying to, trying to make friends out there. And I felt it when I was deployed. I felt 
uh, when I was in Afghanistan that, that the flag on my shoulder represented a country that was viewed as keeping its wor word, viewed that way by our allies and viewed that way by our enemies. And I, I really believe that that, just as much as my body armor, was helping to keep me safe. And if we lose that, uh, I don't think that any of the solutions being kicked around in the Pentagon are going to work. Uh, my question is for Jane. Yes. Um, I am often impressed, and if I'm honest, a little horrified by the charity and graciousness with which you treat people who say and do some pretty odious things. I realize that's, that's your job. Um, my question is, can you teach us how to do that? Um, <laughs> we have 10 minutes. Well, <laughs> so I actually, uh, I, earlier this week, I spoke to a group of high school students and they asked me, well, first they wanted to know all of my political views on everything. <laughs> And it's then hard to be I got gracious with teens. Yeah, and I was like, okay, okay, we're not going to do that. Then they also asked me, like, how do you deal with people who disagree? And I think that the biggest thing, the lesson I've learned is to come at people with good faith, even when I am well aware that people are not not interacting with me in good faith. That's not on. Th that's not on me to determine or to have to deal with. You know, if I come at them with bad faith and like a defensive mechanism, like that's, that's how you play battleship. That's not how you have a conversation. And so I think interacting with people in good faith, you know, the most important things to me when I have those conversations aren't necessarily, you know, will this solve all of my questions or answer all of my questions? I, I recognize that I will still have more questions, but if I come in good faith, I think that I have a responsibility to you I have a responsibility to the people who read me or the people who want to talk to me to act in good faith. I think that's the most important thing. Otherwise, you know, we talked a little bit about being married and the most important thing is when I come home, can I talk to my spouse about what I did and can I say that like I acted in good faith even if they didn't? And you know, I think that's how I do it. Hi. You were talking about how easy it is for um, wealthy people to buy power or influence. Um, and from a campaign finance perspective, we're seeing this sort of small dollar online revolution, right? Which is great. Um, and I wanted to just hear you talk a little bit about what campaign finance reforms you think are necessary um, to sort of get us out of that place where wealthy people can buy that level of power. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm so excited to see small dollar fundraising take more of a role, even within the framework we have, which has to change. We'll come to that in a second. Um, but we need more people to express, uh, you know, at, at a day-to-day -day grassroots level. By the way, a bit selfishly, I'm counting on this because in order to be invited to the debate stage, I need 65,000 different people to go to peopleforamerica.com, and it could be three bucks, <laughs> but uh, if you haven't done it, you can take out your phone right now, feel free, <laughs> tell 10 friends. Um, but it's really important to me, and, and I think it was wise of the DNC to make that a qualification uh, instead of just how you're doing in the polls and how many millions have you raised. Um, also, as a matter of personal campaign finance, we decided not to accept corporate PAC money, so we're that much more reliant on the grassroots dollars. Um, so structurally, though, this has got to change. I mean, we just can't go on. Citizens United, I think, was a disaster for our democracy, and I think even now we are underreacting. A lot of folks say, well, you know, the Constitution says you have to let money be in politics this way, and the Constitution says you have to let corporations be people. I don't think the Constitution says that, but if that's really true, or if that's really how it's going to be interpreted, then how about a constitutional amendment? You know, we talk about constitutional amendments like it's some crazy idea that could never be achieved. When we live in a country that changed its Constitution so you couldn't drink, <laughs> and then realized that was a dumb idea and changed it back, mm -hmm. right? 
of course we could change the Constitution to defend our democracy, and I think we're going to have to entertain those kinds of remedies if we really want to call ourselves the democracy that we believe we ought to be living up to. So uh, back to um, good faith negotiations, I, I wanted to bring up Mitch McConnell and, and the court packing that's going on and an article that I read about your willingness to explore some more extreme methods. Uh, the Dems are often called to higher ground um, with regard to bipartisanship, and I wonder how you view the future of bipartisanship and whether you think some more um, extreme measures are relevant with regard to the federal courts and even the Supreme Court um, eliminating the filibuster and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? Because I think that presumption of good faith is so important, and you have to, you have to make sure you're not becoming or emulating the thing you're trying to be. And yet, our sense of fair play has come to bite us again and again and again, especially in the Senate. And so uh, things like the filibuster have to be on the table, I think, if uh, it's being used to, uh, in a bad faith way to obstruct democracy. Similarly with the Supreme Court. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea that's gotten the most attention is like, let's just add justices. And I, I get that, but then somebody else could just add justices. So there's some concerns there. I think the, the well, let's start with the problem we're trying to solve, which is that the Supreme Court is on a trajectory toward being viewed as a nakedly political institution. And let's contemplate serious reform to fix that. So one thing you might do is adjust the number. I think if you do that, there are some other things you could do. There's actually a great Vox uh, explainer on this that's got a couple of ideas. There you um, go. <laughs> and, uh, Fixed and terms for justices? <laughs> What's yes. that? You got term you know, limits I for actually, I'm a little concerned about the term limits because uh, if you have term limits and you have justices thinking about their future career, Sorry. and that creates some problems. So maybe there's a way to do it where they go into a senior status or something like that, but it's not the cure-all that I think it's being presented as. I am very interested in a proposal where you would expand the court to 15 members. Ten of them would be appointed in the traditional, one might say, political fashion. Five of them. Uh, would be seated only by consensus of the other 10 that has to be unanimous. And so it just makes it a little less political. And by the way, there's some evidence that you could do this without a constitutional amendment, that you could actually just do this by law. Um, but the, let's start with the problem we're trying to fix and then have a healthy debate over solutions uh, because we cannot continue to be in a, a world where every vacancy, where people are doing strategic retirements, maybe even like strategically deciding when to die, um, <laughs> uh, knowing that every vacancy is going to turn into this apocalyptic ideological battle that weakens the court and thereby the country. Hi, so I want to revisit your experience as mayor, since I think you and Julian Castro are the only ones in the race with that experience. You talked a lot about revitalizing South Bend and uh, coming to this conclusion that you have to remake the cities and bring people to the cities. Uh, here in Austin, it's a very different experience than these sort of hollowed out Midwestern towns. This is one of these places where you talked about where people do have to come from work. You have just recently we had the Apple campus announced up north. I personally am from Oklahoma. And one of the issues here is that when cities bring in all these people and bring in all of these business incentives and uh, all of this regrowth, what happens is a lot of displacement, right? Yeah. You have the issue of gentrification, where does bringing in new wealth and bringing in new business mean uh, sort of shafting these people, often uh, black and Hispanic communities that have been here forever and now don't get to benefit from the growth? So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on how do you regrow these Midwestern cities without screwing the people 
who are most yeah. I mean, it's something we think about a lot in our community because uh, we're a racially diverse community, and and that character is part of what makes us who we are. And so uh, Austin has a radically different uh, set of of problems and and uh, solutions uh, than a place like South Bend. I mean, here the the problem really is ra rapidly accelerating growth and the displacement that comes with that growth. Um, part of that means that you have to make sure building is done in such a way that more housing options are possible. Uh, sometimes there's a certain sort of protectionism that that, that can happen. <laughs> Right? Um, sounds like I'm not the only one who's, who's experienced that. Um, you also need to make sure that uh, we're, we're figuring out like, what makes it possible for some people to bid up preposterously uh, the value of some land. And some of that, I think, does go back to just some basic questions of income inequality. We've also got to make sure that we have more uh, transportation infrastructure so that people can move around a, a region in a way that doesn't lead to this kind of immiserated outer ring that's trying but spending as much money as, as they earn just getting to work. And we're actually piloting a potential solution on that that would kind of reinvent how public transportation meets ride sharing in South Bend. If it goes well, uh, well, we'll have something to share with the world a little bit later. This is a set of problems that is really different in different communities. And I guess the other thing I would mention is that federal housing policy needs to be much more customized. Most countries, organize housing at the local level. And education policy happens at the national level. We might be the only country that does education policy at the local level and housing federally. Which means in a community like mine, where we got a lot of houses that are unaffordable because their prices are so low, you can't get a loan on them. Uh, we shouldn't be applying the same policy tools that were cooked up to help make a situation like Oakland or Austin become more livable and adjust for displacement uh, threats that are happening with economic growth there. All right, I think we probably got time for, uh, for one more question. We get maybe back there. Howdy, sir. So part of GDP is stuff. It's not just services, it's, it's refrigerators, it's cars, it's things that we can buy, except not millennials, because we all have student debt that doesn't allow us to, to buy these things. So once all the boomers are gone that aren't buying new cars anymore and aren't buying refrigerators, our product's gonna drop because we can't afford anything because I'm paying $500 a month on a student loan for a degree that I was promised would bring me somewhere, except it doesn't. So what's your ideas on going forward student loan reform in any way, shape, or form? So this is a personal issue for us. We're, we're dealing with six-figure student debt, and uh, it is for so many people in our generation. And we have a, a system that was designed so that pe people could borrow against their future earnings. And it just doesn't pencil out. Not only that, it punishes you for going into, I would argue, very choice-worthy fields, like becoming a school teacher, uh, that are less lucrative than becoming a, a doctor or an attorney. So we need to do several things. First of all, the root cause, just contain college costs, which means that states need to step up. And there may be ways the federal government can incentivize that. You know, uh, some people have commented on how a lot of state universities have gone from kind of state uh, funded to state subsidized to now kind of state related. But the state's not really doing its part to keep costs down. Uh, we've also got to look at the structure of student debt. We've got to look at why interest rates are what they are and whether we can have a financing option. And we've got to think about whether we can improve income-based uh, repayment. Well, I should say more, but we need to improve income-based repayment and relax also the cap on things like teacher or public 
uh, service loan forgiveness programs because those should be much more widely accessible. Then we're solving a couple problems at once, right? Incentivizing service and vitiating student debt. Uh, we've got to, this is hanging over the heads of an entire generation and it will stifle, as you say, economic production and it will also just stifle the opportunities and the productivity our, of our country. Uh, education is supposed to be the engine of social mobility. It's the thing that makes the American dream work well. And if access to that is choked off, or if a, the next generation looks at our generation and says, wow, you did not do yourself any favors by getting educated, so I'm just gonna take a pass on that, then we are, talk about penny wise and pound foolish, we are costing ourselves hugely, and we will pay that price for the rest of the century. All right, I think our, our sign there is flashing at us. Um, so thank you so much, thank uh, you. Mayor Pete. Thanks. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. All right, guys, uh, th thanks for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed that special live episode with South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I also want to let you know on Friday, we're going to have another special live episode brought to you from South by Southwest. Uh, this one is with former HUD Secretary and San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro. It's another really interesting conversation. Uh, we'll be back uh, the week after that with your sort of regular weeds programming. Uh, but these were kind of special conversations. Thought we should share them with you. I uh, also want to let you know we're conducting an audience survey to serve you guys better. It, it takes like five minutes of your time, uh, which is which is not so much considering, you know, it'll help us make better podcasts, uh, stuff you're really interested in. So you can find the survey at voxmedia.com slash pod survey. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and come back Friday for our conversation with former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.